Good morning. Welcome to Northminster Church this morning. Whether you were joining us in person or online, we are glad that you are here and sharing in this time of worship with us today. Uh, several things as we begin. The first is to say a special welcome to those of you who are visiting with us this morning. We are particularly honored by your presence and hope that you will join us in all aspects of our worship service, including communion. There are instructions as to how we do communion in your order of worship, if you'd like to read over those or just follow the crowd, they'll show you how to do it. Uh, you will also notice the beautiful fall floral arrangement on our communion table. Do make sure after our service, those flowers are there for you to take uh, with you to brighten your day or someone else's. So please do so as you leave this morning. Uh, I also wanna highlight a couple of things in our uh, order of worship itself. Uh, the first is for our kids. You're gonna notice that the children's message is a little sooner in the worship service than it was last time we did it. We're trying to figure out the best place for this, so we're kind of moving it around a little bit. I still want you to come up and sit on the stairs if you want to on the last verse of that hymn, number 86. Um, so don't be afraid to come on up, come sit on the stairs, we'll do the children's message, and then you can go back to your seat or back in the back. I also want to give a little bit of a content warning. Uh, this morning's Old Testament lesson is not an easy story. Uh, and I have written a sermon that goes along with a not easy story, but it might be difficult for some folks. Uh, there are some pretty adult themes in this story this morning. Um, so if you find yourself uncomfortable, um, please don't feel like you have to sit and continue to listen. I will not be offended if you need to get up and take a moment. Or if parents, you hear something in there and think, hmm, kids might be too little for this. They need to go in the back. That's okay. Sometimes the Bible has tough stories that we have to reckon with, and they're adult stories. So just know before we get there, if that one's hard for you, you do what you need to do to take care of yourself. I also want to uh, remind everybody that following worship today, about 1 p.m. probably, we are going to have a baptism. Uh, and it has been such gorgeous fall weather, but that does not mean that that water is going to be warm. So... <laughs> Uh, it'll be a baptism in the bayou. We have a whole slew of kids who are going to be baptized. And I plan for that to move pretty quickly. So uh, do plan to be there promptly uh, so that we can celebrate the Kimball Keens kids and their baptisms and do that celebration together. I also want you to remind you that on October 9th, that's next Sunday, we will have a blessing of the animals. You can see more details about that in the newsletter, but that will be at 5 p.m. And then October 22nd and 23rd are the STAG lectures, uh, and again, more information about that in the newsletter. All right, with all that said, let's take a deep breath together. We take this deep breath to settle ourselves, to give our brains and our hearts a chance to catch up with our body, and to find a moment of stillness. So take a deep breath. As you breathe in, Breathe in the joy of this good place. Breathe in the love that surrounds each and every one of us the moment we step into God's house. As you breathe out, breathe out your to-do list. Breathe out any homework that might not be done. Breathe out any and all distractions that you might have brought with you today. And then let us worship God together. Let's take a minute to talk about October's focus 
for the mission truck. Uh, this month we're fo focusing on Rays of Sunshine, which is a women's addiction recovery residence specializing in quality, long-term residential care for women who suffer from substance abuse and chemical dependency or who are victims of domestic violence and who may also have a co-occurring mental health disorder. Rays of Sunshine connects the women with community support services and collaborates with other support agencies. There is a food pantry that serves 350 to 500 families. Rays of Sunshine is dedicated to seeing women's lives rebuilt, children reunited with their mothers, and unborn children born drug-free. Some of the needs um, that they have, any home necessities such as sheets, blankets, pillows, towels, washcloths, um, these may be new or used, cleaning supplies, anything that you would need in the home. And because there are children, school supplies are needed. Clothing, including socks and underwear, all sizes. Personal care items, toiletries, over-the-counter medical supplies, anything that you would find in a home medicine cabinet. The residents also go to Walmart every second Wednesday, so Walmart gift cards are a good choice. Uh, you can find more detailed information uh, on their website, raysofsunshine.com. That uh, sunshine is spelled S-O-N. Um, and also, I think Renee will probably post uh, a complete list on the trunk itself. Now please join me in our call to worship. If the human body is to live, it needs salt. If the body of Christ is to live, it needs us. If the earthly creation is to flourish, it needs the sun's light. Jesus says we are salt of the earth, light of the world. But if salt isn't salty, it isn't what and if a light doesn't shine, it isn't Jesus says we are salt of the earth, light of the world, briny and bright, we are God's faithful people. A welcoming oasis, a compassionate community, God's salty people. Amen.
screen so I can see you. Can you face me? Excellent. Good morning. No, let's do it again. Good morning. Much better. Okay. So, some of you guys are getting baptized today, aren't you? Yeah. We're going to be cold together. It's going to be okay. But I'm going to talk to you about baptisms this morning. So I'm going to show you a picture, and I want you to tell me if you know what it is. Right? You ready? What is that? It's a map. Can anybody, can anybody read, a good reader, read and tell me what it says? What's a map of? This is a map of Israel during the time of Jesus. We call this the Holy Land. And this is how it looked back then, as far as we know. Okay, now, does anybody see this blue squiggle? Long blue squiggle? Can you see what that is? What do you think that is? Close, it's a kind of water. It's a long blue squiggle in land. It's a river. Good job, that's right. Okay. That specifically is the Jordan River. Does anybody know why the Jordan River is important? Yes, one very important person. If that's where people got baptized, who is a really important person in the Bible? Say it louder. Jesus. That's right. Good job. That's almost always the answer in these sorts of questions. <laughs> okay, so, show you another picture. It kind of looks like a bayou. Not a bayou. What do you think that is? That's the Jordan River, where Jesus was baptized, as far as we know. You, well, you could get baptized there, but we're not going to go that far today. <laughs> a lot of people do go and are baptized in the Jordan River. My best friend was baptized in the Jordan River, because that's where Jesus was baptized. Now. Do you have to be baptized in the Jordan River for it to matter? No. Do you have to even be baptized outside for it to matter? No. The last church where I was the pastor, we had what's called a baptistry, which is basically a really big bathtub inside the church. And we baptized people in the church. But it wasn't any warmer than the bayou. So, some people, because you guys are going to be what's called fully immersed. That means you're going to go completely under the water. <laughs> we talked about this. You knew this. But some people are sprinkled. That means when they're little babies, or even sometimes as grown-ups, they have water that's just sprinkled over their heads. Some people are just blessed with water on their foreheads. There's lots of different ways to baptize people. Do you think there's one right way to get baptized? No, there's not. You can get baptized inside, but not here because we don't have a baptistry. There's no one right way to be baptized. There's no one right place to be baptized. There's no one right time. Because you guys are kids. Could an adult get baptized? No. Yes. Yes. <laughs> this is what happens when you let them answer. Yes, an adult can be baptized. Can girls be baptized? Yes. yes. Can boys be baptized? Yes. yes. Of course we can. Anyone can be baptized at any age and anywhere because God is everywhere. That's the most important part of the baptism is that God is there and God is always there. 
it's that we do it sincerely. Do you all know what really sincere means? It means you take it seriously. You aren't acting silly. You go and this is something you want to do. And as long as you do it knowing that even once you're baptized, you still have a lot to learn. Because that's the thing. All of the adults in this room who've been baptized, we're still learning. I was baptized when I was seven years old. That was almost 30 years ago. Okay? That was a long time ago. I'm still learning what it means to be baptized. And that's okay. So I want you all to think about that today. Remember, baptism can happen anywhere, for anyone, as long as God is present. Now, at any time. Now, here's what I want you to do. Turn around and face the congregation. Yes, we're going to do this every week. I'm going to sit up. Nice and polite. Thank you. And I'm going to say, we're going to say our prayer together. I'll say the first line. You say it back to me nice and loud, but actually say it to the congregation. Adults, you are welcome to join in. Here we go. Hold on. I see the face of God in you. The love of Christ comes shining through. And I am blessed to be with you. Oh, holy child of God. Amen. You can go back to your seats now. Thank you. hear this reading from the gospel according to Matthew. And blessed are you, blessed are all of you, when people persecute you or denigrate you or despise you or tell lies about you on my account. But when this happens, rejoice, be glad. Remember that God's prophets have been persecuted in the past and know that in heaven you have a great reward. You, beloved, are the salt of the earth, but if salt becomes bland and loses its saltiness, can anything make it salty again? No. It is useless. It is tossed out, thrown away, or trampled. And you, beloved, are the light of the world. A city built on the hilltop cannot be hidden. It would be silly to light a lamp and then hide it under a bowl. When someone lights a lamp, she puts it on a table or a desk or a chair, and the light illumines the entire house. You are like that illuminating light. Let your light shine everywhere you go, that you may illumine creation so people everywhere may see your good actions, may see creation at its fullest, may see your devotion to me, and may turn and praise God. Do not think that I have come to overturn or do away with the law or the words of our prophets. To the contrary, I have not come to overturn them, but to fulfill them. This, beloved, is the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not one letter, not one pen stroke will disappear from the sacred law. For everything, everything in the sacred law will be fulfilled and accomplished. Anyone who breaks even the smallest, most obscure commandment, not to mention teaches others to do the same, will be called small and obscure in the kingdom of heaven. 
Those who practice the law and teach others how to live the law will be great, called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you this, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven unless your righteousness goes deeper than the Pharisees, even more righteous than the most learned learner of the law. As you know, long ago, God instructed Moses to tell the people, do not murder. Those who murder will be judged and punished. But here is the even harder truth. Anyone who is angry with his brother will be judged for his anger. Anyone who taunts his friends, speaks arrogant towards him, or calls him loser, fool, or scum will have to answer to the, higher, to the high court. And anyone who calls his brother a fool may find himself in the fires of hell. The Gospel of our Lord. praise you, gracious God, for your grace that sustains us over all our days. We offer our gratitude for your gifts that seem to hide from our view, yet empower us to live and serve in every place you call us, and for blessings we find it easy to count. Today we remember those who are longing for a different or better life. We lift up those who have been betrayed by family or friends, abused by employers, misjudged by neighbors, or harassed because of their identity. We call to mind the ongoing horror of human trafficking, people forced to labor to serve others' greed and to enable our own consumption. We pray for those still being harmed by historic wrongs, living with the consequences of racist systems and cycles we have not yet broken. May your justice transform our ways of being that all people might know the blessings of equity, kindness, and freedom. We lift up those whose lives are marked by war and oppression, whose voices are silenced by fear or neglect or power they cannot access. We call to mind the ongoing global horror of violence against women and children and the pain endured by those who do not fit our stereotypical images. We pray for those still being harmed by traumatic experiences, living with physical and mental and spiritual and relational challenges we might not see. May your compassion move us to action, that all people might know the blessings of peace, comfort, and security. We lift up those who suffer from illness in body, mind, or spirit, who are waiting for answers or undergoing treatment, and for those who cannot get the health care they need to flourish in this life. We call to mind the ongoing horror of preventable diseases stealing lives and the work of those who seek solutions for sanitation, clean water, hunger, and access to medicine. We pray for those with chronic conditions still being harmed by long-term COVID, by pain as a constant companion, by the stress of multiple appointments, and the uncertainty of what a day will hold. 
May your healing spirit fill them, Lord, that all people might know the blessing of wholeness in the midst of it all. And we thank you, God, for you have promised to be with us. We pray you would change things so that the world might look more like your kingdom. And we pray for hearts and wills open to recognize when you are changing us to be an answer to our prayers. We pray all these things in the name of the one who taught us to pray, Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. From Genesis. Now Joseph had been taken to Egypt. Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and captain of the guard, himself an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him there to sell along with their goods and wares. The Eternal One was with Joseph, however, and he became successful in his own right as a slave within the house of his Egyptian master. Potiphar could not help but notice that the Eternal One was with Joseph and caused everything Joseph did to prosper. Joseph became the favorite of the household and rose in the ranks to become Potiphar's personal assist assistant. In time, Potiphar made Joseph overseer of the entire household and put him in charge of everything he owned. From that moment, the Eternal One blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake, a blessing which seemed to cover everything Potiphar possessed from house to field. Potiphar entrusted everything to the care of Joseph. With him in charge, Potiphar had no concern about anything except for his private affairs, such as the food he chose to eat. Now Joseph was a well-built, good-looking young man. After a while, his master's wife began watching him, and she tried to seduce him. She said to him, come, sleep with me, but Joseph refused. Joseph told her, look, Please don't take offense, but with me in charge, my master has no concerns for anything that goes on in his house. He has trusted me with everything he has. He hasn't treated me like I am any less than he is, and he hasn't kept anything from me, except, of course, for you because you are his wife. 
Why would I do something so clearly wrong and sin so blatantly against God? Although she pursued him day after day, Joseph would not consent to sleep with her and refused to be alone with her. One day, however, when he went into the house to do his work while no one else was in the house, she grabbed him by his clothes and tried again to seduce him, saying, Come on, sleep with me. But Joseph ran outside, away from her, as far and as fast as he could, leaving her holding his clothes in her hand. When she realized he rejected her again, and she had his clothes in her hand, she called after the other servants in her household, saying, See here, my husband brought this Hebrew into our house to take advantage of us. He came to me and wanted to sleep with me. I screamed as loudly as I could, and when he heard me yell, he dropped his clothes here beside me and ran outside. She kept Joseph's clothes beside her until her husband came home. Then she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant you brought into this household came in to take advantage of me. When I screamed as loudly as I could, he dropped his clothes here beside me and ran outside. <clears throat> when Potiphar heard his wife's account, his face flushed with anger. So Potiphar, Joseph's master, put him into prison and locked him up in the place where the king's prisoners were confined. Joseph remained there for a time, but the Eternal One remained with Joseph and showed him his loyal love and granted him favored status with the chief jailer. The jailer put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were confined there. Whatever needed to be done, Joseph, would, Joseph was the one to do it. The chief jailer, like Potiphar, didn't need to worry about anything that was in Joseph's care because the Eternal One was with him. And whatever Joseph did worked out well because the Eternal made it so. A story of God's abiding presence even in times of stress. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. O oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. And may we hear a word from you today. Amen. When he was killed on August 28, 1955, Emmett Till was 14 years old. He'd been 14 for less than a month when he was accused of sexually harassing Carolyn Bryant in a grocery store. If you know this story, you know the important detail here is that Carolyn was white and Emmett was black. After Emmett's death, the two white men accused of his murder were found not guilty by an all-white, all-male jury. Four months later, those same men admitted to kidnapping and murdering Till in an interview with Look magazine. But because they'd already been tried and found not guilty, they could not be tried again, and they never served time for Emmett's death. Sixty years later, Carolyn Bryant admitted she had lied about her interaction with Emmett. Till never grabbed her, never made physical or sexual advances. Despite all of this, she didn't face any consequences for her, her dishonesty either. If you're familiar with this story, it's because Emmett's mother, Mamie Till Mo, uh, Mobley, 
refused to let her son be forgotten or ignored. After his body was found in the Tallahatchie River, unrecognizable except for a ring that he was wearing that had belonged to his father, Mamie insisted on an open casket, saying, let the people see what they did to my boy. According to the NAACP, more than 4,700 people were lynched in this country between 1882 and 1968. The vast majority were black, and while there were some white victims of lynching, they were usually killed for trying to help black folks, advocating for their rights, or speaking up against lynching in general. And as I'm sure you're aware, particularly in the late 1800s, claims that black men assaulted or made sexual advances on white women, that was a frequent justification for lynchings. Historians say that in reality, many assault accusation claims were false. And they were often used as a cover for consensual relationships that were, at the time, totally taboo. And racist beliefs were so deep-seated among white communities that whites could not countenance the idea of a white woman desiring intimacy with a black person. Thus, any physical relationship between a white woman and a black man had, by definition, to be unwanted assault. That's from historian Philip Day. The perception of black men as a danger to white women contributing to false accusations like the one that caused him till his life, of course, that's rooted in slavery. For example, according to the American Bar Association, during slavery, there were no laws here in Louisiana to make the sexual assault of a black woman, slave or free, a crime. I'm gonna say that again. Here in Louisiana, during slavery, there were no laws in this state to make the sexual assault of a black woman, slave or free, a crime. Sexual assault was specifically limited to white women. However, Louisiana's provisions mandated capital punishment, capital punishment, for both the sexual assault and the attempted assault of a white female by a slave. Today, black men are twice as likely to be arrested for a sexual offense and three times more likely to be accused of a sexual offense than a white man. And this isn't because black men are committing these crimes more than white men are, that, that high, there are not higher rates of crime happening. This happens because they, black men, they are more often suspected and accused of such crime due to racial biases. And to round out these shameful statistics, according to the National Registry of Exonerations, innocent black people are seven times, seven times, more likely to be wrongfully convicted of a murder than an innocent white person. And studies show that black men are sentenced to death far more often when accused of committing a crime against a white person. Since 1976, nearly 300 black people accused of murdering white people have been executed. That's about 14 times the number of white people executed for murdering another white person. If you're uncomfortable, especially if you're not a person of color, good. You need to sit in that discomfort. We all do. That's part of my reason for beginning this way. As a majority white congregation, we do not have the luxury of being unaware of these realities. It's our responsibility 
to know this information. The other reason to begin this way is to connect this morning's story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife with a more recent, more geographically understandable context. Because Potiphar's wife identifies, identifies Joseph as a Hebrew, as a Hebrew, twice in these verses. Both times occur when she's accusing Joseph of assaulting her. Now, let's back up a bit, make sure we understand where we are in the story. Refresh our collective memories of how we've gotten here. Joseph was his father Jacob's favorite, but not his only son. He had brothers. You might remember that Joseph was given a very special coat by his father, and his brothers took exception to that. They were very jealous, and they sold him into slavery, telling their father Jacob that Joseph had been killed by wild animals. Joseph eventually makes his way to Egypt. He is sold to Potiphar, and he works his way up to be Potiphar's right-hand man. That's the very, very quick summary of where we are this morning. So as we go back to this morning's verses, did you notice when Paige was reading that big chunk of scripture that Joseph is only identified as a Hebrew in the story when he's being accused? And did you notice Potiphar's wife intentionally calling the rest of the household in when she makes that first accusation? She calls everybody else to her to say, look what happened to me. Then we're told in verse 16 that she keeps Joseph's clothes with her, the clothes Joseph has literally run out of to get away from this woman. She keeps them with her to show them to her husband when he gets home. Now, I'll admit this comparison between race and ethnicity isn't, it isn't perfect. Race and ethnicity are not the same thing. Ethnicity is about who you are, where your people are from. Race is a made-up construct that wasn't even relatively common until the 16th century. And yet the comparison works because similar occurrences, as we have seen, continue to happen. Now what we continue to struggle with, however, whether it's a racist issue now or an ethnic issue in the Bible, whether it's just a modern accusation or this ancient one, is the question of why. Beyond racism, beyond a belief in ethnic superiority, why does this woman behave this way? Is she vindictive out of embarrassment at being turned down? Is this another example of someone being jealous of Joseph, like his brothers were? After all, it's not as if they get caught. Potiphar doesn't walk in on them. She just doesn't let this go. Is it because she's angry that her power as Joseph's owner isn't absolute? That's possible. Is she saddened by being refused attention and intimacy from another man? After all, we're told in the passage that the only thing Potiphar is paying attention to these days is what he's eating. Or is this woman selfish and vindictive? We'll never know. We don't even know this woman's name, so understanding her motivations in this complex, uncomfortable story isn't possible. What we do know is that a negative, selfish understanding of Potiphar's wife fits into a much broader biblical stereotype that women want to take down powerful, upstanding men. That happens a lot in the biblical text. 
And I'll be honest, I want to give Potiphar's wife the benefit of the doubt. I'm a feminist. I read the Bible as a feminist. It's difficult for me not to wonder how and why this woman has ended up making the choices that she has. Has she herself been a victim? But that doesn't excuse her behavior. And what if the roles were reversed? What if the story was about someone's husband treating a female slave this way? That's exactly what a project created by female Jewish scholars is attempting to discover. Their work is called Biet Torah, Biet Torah, and according to their website, they call it the Regendered Bible. Their work sheds a clear light on the deeply patriarchal framework we live in. Furthermore, Torah codifies women's experiences in the sacred and enables divine inspiration to express itself through mother-daughter lineages from within biblical language. That was a whole lot of words. That means they switched the gender roles in the Bible, and it's powerful. So, honestly, painfully, when we reverse the roles in this story, we can't deny that not only does Potiphar's wife falsely accuse Joseph, she sexually assaults him. Which takes this already dark story and makes it predatory. It means these verses should come with a trigger warning, which is what I tried to offer at the beginning of the service. And it makes it difficult to see anything positive, anything worth taking away from this story. But let me offer you another interpretation that paints these verses, if not in a better light, in a more diverse one. There is ancient Jewish scholarship that suggests Joseph is described as gender non-conforming or gender fluid. Yes, these are contemporary terms. Joseph would not have called himself either of those things. But that terminology is a helpful way to sum up what is happening in the Hebrew. Remember, Hebrew likes to play word games. So let's unpack this. What am I talking about? First, Joseph is described in this passage as being well-built and good-looking. These are the same words that are used to describe his mother, Rachel, in Genesis 29:17. This is language that usually describes a woman's shapely form. And do you remember that famous coat that Joseph is given by his father? The Hebrew that's used to describe that coat talks about its long sleeves that go all the way down past your hands. It's the same language that's used in 2 Samuel 13 to describe a coat that is worn by King David's daughter Tamar. And in 2 Samuel, this type of coat is called what the virgin princesses wore as garments. So as Dr. Amy Robertson, the rabbi that I listen to weekly, says, Joseph, being non, gender nonconforming, fills out the character in a way that makes things make sense. Because LBGTQ folks are used for life that hasn't been easy. I'm preaching to the choir at this point, I know. Being part of the Rainbow Mafia, that's my daughter's favorite term, she and her girlfriend, that's the one they use. Being part of the Rainbow Mafia unfairly requires you to be courageous and have integrity in ways those of us who are white, straight, and cisgendered don't always have to have. And more specifically, reading Joseph with an LGBTQ lens 
and specifically a gender non-conforming lens, crashes any assumption that, of course, Joseph wanted to sleep with this woman and just fought the urge. Instead, Potiphar's wife is the one making assumptions based on her own interpretation of how someone should perform their masculinity. In this reading, Joseph is trying to be himself. He's trying to be faithful. His rejection of Potiphar's wife is less a rejection of her and more a rejection of the identity she has created for him that Joseph never had to begin with. Now this is important because even if this reading is too much eisegesis, which is a seminary word, which seminary word for the day means you read into the text, even if this is too much reading into the text, this lens points to the vulnerability of our LGBTQ siblings. It specifically points to the vulnerability of trans folks. This vulnerability comes in the form of so much suffering being heaped upon our trans siblings because of the assumptions, the misinformation, and sheer refusal to be compassionate that often forms in people's minds and hearts. Now, I'm on my soapbox. I'm going to step off of it, I promise, and attempt to bring all of this together. With these themes that I've mentioned, and there are a lot of them, racism, ethnocentrism, false accusations, sexual assault, how unfair and inaccurate assumptions uh, affect our trans siblings. With all of that, what can we possibly take away from what is a rather ugly story? Is there good news to be had? Thankfully, the answer is yes. First, the takeaway that isn't so much good news as a good reminder is this. We must constantly pay attention to power dynamics, personally, professionally, for ourselves, our church, our country. Who are we putting in unwinnable situations? How can we better look out for vulnerable people in our communities? Because, and, and this is where we're going to transition to the good news, this story reminds us that God is explicitly with the one who isn't powerful in any way in this story. The only thing that's constant in Joseph's life at this point is God. And even the Eternal's presence doesn't keep bad things from happening to him. And that's the end of this morning's good news. While our being in relationship with God doesn't prevent bad things from happening in our lives, God's presence can be felt when things are working out for good and when we're in times of challenge. And I know, I know personally, we would rather be assured that being in relationship with God is a safeguard, that it means nothing bad is going to happen in your life, that it means you're safe. I wish I could tell you that that is how things work, or at least give you some sort of explanation as to why bad things happen. But I can't. I can't. What I can tell you, what I can point to, what I can hopefully remind you of, particularly if you're hurting this morning, is to remember Joseph in this story. For if God is with Joseph in this dark, difficult moment in his life, you can be assured that God is with you in your dark moments, no matter what you're facing or who you're facing. Amen.
Friends, as we come to the communion table, let us remember that this is a joyful feast of unity. Christ has gathered his people around the earth to commune at this table, not just here at Northminster Church, but Christians across the globe participate in this meal. This is not my table. This is not Northminster's table. This is God's table. So we gather here where everyone is equal and everyone is welcome. We gather around this table, across political lines and economic lines, in places of powerfully protected affluence and among the poorest of the poor. We share a meal remembering and celebrating the one who is the tangible heart of God. And so come to this table. Come with your doubts. Come with your hopes. Come with your inadequacies and with your strengths. Come with your questions. Just come. For this is a table where all have a place. All have a seat. Now if you would, let us pray the prayer that Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. On the night that he was handed over while at supper with his friends, Christ gave us a pledge of love that does not go away with death. On that evening, he took bread and he broke it and he gave it to the disciples saying, take and eat all of you. This is my body surrendered for you. And then when supper was over, he took a cup and he filled it with wine. He gave thanks for it, and he shared it with the disciples, saying, Take and drink, all of you. This is the seal of the new covenant, my poured out life. I will drink this cup with you again at the table of God's joy in the new day that is coming. And whenever you do these things, remember me.
benediction. May God bless you with a distaste for superficial worship so that you will live deep within your soul. May God bless you with anger at prejudice so that you will work for justice. May God bless you with tears for those who sorrow so that you will offer comfort. And may God bless you with enough foolishness to believe that you can make a difference in the world. Go in peace.